We're starting a series on spiritual gifts, so the best way to do that is to invite the Holy Spirit to be our instructor tonight. Let's start off with a specific prayer focusing on that for a moment. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence into this room right now. We wouldn't dare to begin a topic like this without thinking that you had more to offer than any of us collectively could ever read or study or contribute. This is your place in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would find a way to assist us in understanding this subject, that you would be our instructor, you would be our teacher, our guide, our mentor, that Holy Spirit, even in the midst of us trying to describe and understand the spiritual gifts, that we would see you act through that effort. And maybe, Lord, you would instruct us in a way that we wouldn't even expect. I pray for that right now in our midst. In your precious name, amen. All right, we're going to do this topic on spiritual gifts. We've been talking about it for a little while. And yes, like all of our series, it's going to span a little bit of time. Last week, we had a great time of introduction. This is actually the real intro. Last week was the intro to the intro. Last week, we just sat around and just asked questions. Um, I know some of you wanted the answers, you know, and we actually collected your questions. You're going to see some of them in a moment to see, like, what kind of questions you asked. And I had you write down on little cards, like, some of the gifts you thought there were. Some of them were kind of funny, you know, the ones that you put down. I think Ryan stuck the cake. You wrote down the spiritual gift of frankincense and myrrh. That was the best one that I read. Okay? Yeah, it could be a spiritual gift. There are actually some that surprise me as I'm going through this. So that was just kind of an introduction. You're going to see some of the fruit of that work that we did last week tonight. So what are we doing? You know that I like to start off every series by justifying why we're going to spend any of the time. We're stewards of God's time. Why would we spend time on this topic? We have others that we could skip over and get to, but I think this one's going to be really important for us as a group, especially over the summer, as we fine-tune our giftings too and get ready for a good fall launch for the new people that might be joining us. Why study the spiritual gifts? Well, you can see the first reason is that most Christians don't know anything about the spiritual gifts. I don't say anything. They know very little about it. Last week, I mentioned the George Barna research study that he, where he asked the church about spiritual gifts. George Barna is a guy who likes to poll the church and everybody likes to cite him. So I figure we'll jump on that bandwagon. He found that 21% of Christians believe they don't have any gifts. I think there's probably some people in this room that think they don't have a gift. In fact, I would guess that if I asked, maybe it'd be more than 21% of people in this room think, I'm not sure I have a gift. Okay? It's something that's on our mind. 46 don't know what gift they might have, 46%. So it's like about almost half of the Christians polled weren't sure they had a gift or what their gift would be. They weren't even sure they had one. So this means that most of us are walking around with some understanding of it, but not really too much knowledge. Um, one of the things that people cited in the survey was that some of the people responded, said they had gifts that actually weren't even gifts, at least not spiritual gifts that are listed in the Bible. So maybe somewhere along the way in the church, we've kind of invented some gifts and added them to it. Okay, I'm not really sure what that might be, but maybe someone's come up and said, you know, I think you have the gift of doing the dishes. You know, like maybe you should help us in our luncheons at the church or whatever, you know. And somehow you've like gone, yeah, maybe that's something I can do. Maybe it's spiritual calling. So not much information. Number two, the church has been divided about spiritual gifts, but most of us, if I asked you to articulate it, probably wouldn't be able to articulate what the division's over. 
What's the debate about? Some churches shy away from spiritual gifts entirely. Some people embrace it fully. And some people know that there's some middle ground, but most people don't know what it is. I want to explore that with you guys. And finally, I think that if spiritual gifts are active, because I'm going to say if for right now, because that's one of the things we're going to talk about, and if everybody possesses one, again, another if, then wouldn't it make sense that we should discover what they are? Even in this group, that we should know what our gifting is? Because if you realigned everybody to where they're supposed to be and use their gifts, we'd be firing on all cylinders, you know, instead of maybe right now, we're not sure we have a gift, we're not sure what our gift is. Maybe we know there are gifts, but we don't know how we're supposed to use them. So a personal benefit for us as a group, a personal benefit for each one of us individually might be to maybe hone in a little bit and say, hey, I didn't even know I had this gift. Or I've always sensed that I had this gift, but I want to know more about it. I want to know what it is or how I can cultivate it and grow it. That's why we're spending our time doing this. Here's some of the questions you asked. I don't know how many weeks it's going to take to cover all these questions. I'm not guaranteeing we'll cover them all. Here are some of the questions. What are all the spiritual gifts? Where are they found in the Bible? Are they still active today? What about tongues and healings? Are those still around? Does every Christian have a spiritual gift? Is it okay not to have a spiritual gift? Are they all equally important or equally effective? What if I don't know what my spiritual gift is? Do spiritual gift inventories really identify gifts? What's the difference between a spiritual gift and a natural talent or a skill? Can our gifts change? Can we lose them? Are some gifts obscured? How do you cultivate a gift if you have one? Is a spiritual gift a sign of salvation? Why does it seem that the big spiritual gifts work only in the charismatic church or Africa? Or do we not see the gifts in America because of a lack of faith? Should our gifts be used in secret? How would you explain to someone who is growing in their faith that everyone has a spiritual gift? Can we discover our spiritual gift without a test? Can I use my spiritual gifts anywhere in all contexts? Are there gifts that everyone has? What gift is the holiest and best gift and do I have it? <laughs> wow, can we cover all those questions in a single series? We're gonna cover it in a single night. We're just gonna be here till tomorrow morning. All right, trying to get through all of those questions. Are these honest questions? I think most of us kind of would like to know the answers to this. Like if I could just put like a frequently asked questions, put that question and just answer it. I think a lot of people would want to know the answers. That's why we're going to spend the time because we kind of know about the subject, but when you see this vast list of questions that people have, you think, wow, we really must not know that much about this subject because some of these are basic questions, but you know what? I'm wondering about them too. It just means there's a subject that we don't often go into, at least not in our churches, and I put that in quote, maybe there's some churches where this would be common sense, they'd know this right away. All right, we need a foundational element before we start talking about spiritual gifts. How does God use people? This is kind of the rule number one that's gonna help us identify why spiritual gifts are important. And the rule is that God chooses to work through people. All right, I don't think God needs to work through people. In fact, you're going to see that caveat in just a second. But God chooses to work through people. I think he enjoys working through people. Look at just some of the examples that we have from the Old Testament. I mean, he asked Abraham to do something, to basically to see and test his faith and then say, through your faithfulness, I'll begin a nation. Does God need a nation? Does he need a bunch of people following him around in a cloud or whatever he's going to eventually make them do? I don't think he does. 
He asked Noah to build an ark. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? 120 years to build an ark. Don't you think God could have built the ark a little faster? I mean, did he need Noah to build it? No. 120 years. I mean, he could have just said, hey, Noah, by the way, I built an ark over there. Why don't you just go grab all the animals, get on the ark, and let's go. He had him build it for all of those years. Moses, same thing. God could have spoken directly to the people and given them the law. He had Moses. He worked with Moses. He could have freed the people other ways. He used Moses. He could have led them through the desert in other ways. In fact, he did, but he still relied on Moses. Joshua, agent of God to clear out the promised land. Look at the nation of Israel. I mean, all the promises that come through the nation of Israel, how he's going to bless the world. Does he need them? No, but he chose them. That's why they're called the chosen people. The prophets, even down to the Great Commission. You've heard me say over and over sometimes that one of the curiosities about the Bible, about Jesus' Great Commission, about the way we're supposed to take the word to the end of the earth, is that he relied on us. Wouldn't it have been more efficient for God to just send supernatural signs that he was really there? Why does he rely on us? Again, it's, I think it's pretty clear that he wants to use people. All right. So how does he do that in the Old Testament? The Holy Spirit came upon people in the Old Testament. Almost like you could call it like a limited engagement. He needed someone to be a prophet for a short time, and he would, the Holy Spirit would come upon that person, and they would prophesy. All throughout the Old Testament, that was the model. That God would intervene. He would come to a certain person. He'd give a certain person a task. He'd come to Jonah and say, Jonah, deliver this message to the people in Nineveh. That's what I want you to do. All right. In the New Testament, it changes. And this is the beginning of our study on spiritual gifts. Jesus promised us that the Holy Spirit was going to change things. When the Holy Spirit came upon people at Pentecost, it wasn't anymore this limited engagement, choose a person, one-time use, multiple use. From now on, he indwells the people. The Holy Spirit doesn't just come upon someone for a purpose, but he lives in us. He indwells the body of Christ so that now we have the power to act in that way. Okay? And I put this caveat up here just to make sure that everyone is clear on this, that I'm not saying that God needs us to do his bidding. Rather, he enjoys, it pleases him for us to do these things. Okay? And that's the beginning of a study of spiritual gifts. Because if you're going to say, what are the spiritual gifts? Before we even get there, it's like, why would God even have something like this. And the purpose, if we keep this in the background, is he likes to act through his people and he gives them the power to do his bidding. Okay, that's really where we're headed in this talk. All right, some of you last week took a hand at writing down what you thought the spiritual gifts were. Here is the list as far as I can tell. All right, so take a look at that list. Maybe you can uh, see how many of them you got. Here they are, administration, apostleship, craftsmanship, deliverance, discernment, evangelism, exhortation, faith, giving, healing, helps, hospitality, intercession, interpretation of dreams, interpretation of tongues, knowledge, leadership, martyrdom, mercy, miracles, being a missionary, pastoring, prophecy, profit, serving, simplicity, teaching, tongues, wisdom, and worship. And for some of you, disturbingly enough, there actually may be one of celibacy. 
all right? That may be a spiritual gift. I don't know if anybody thinks that they might have that one. We'll check the surveys later and see. But that one is a lifelong celibacy for service of the Lord. It's not on this list because some people disagree as to whether that's really a spiritual gift or not. But thought I'd mention it while you're there. We're going to go through what some of these are. Some of them may sound a little foreign. Some of them you may understand right away, but think, I, I didn't know that was a spiritual gift. Okay, but that's a listing of ones that have biblical support as a spiritual gift. Okay, are the spiritual gifts still active? We're going to start here in terms of understanding what this debate is about, about the spiritual gifts. Last week after we did the intro, a couple of you and I started talking about this idea about are the gifts still active in the church? What gifts are we talking about? See, there's two sides to this debate. There's people on the secessionist side, and there's people that are on the charismatic side. Okay? The, the cessationists believe, it comes from the word cease, right? Like, it's easy enough to understand, that some of the spiritual gifts have ceased. All right? Here's the ones that they believe have ceased. They believe that what, I call, what I'm going to refer to kind of as the miraculous gifts. I don't think that's the best word, but it'll be easy for us to keep in mind. They believe that these gifts ceased. Apostleship, prophet, tongues, prophecy, exorcism, miracles, and healing. So part of the church believes that these don't exist anymore. At least they're not active anymore. They just believe these things are not active. Since the first century, after the apostles were done, we don't have these gifts anymore. We have all the other gifts, by the way. Let me be clear about that. So it's okay to have the gifts of like teaching, you know, service, all those gifts, but not these gifts. Charismatics believe that all the gifts are active. And that's really what the debate is. There's two sides. Tonight we're going to look at the scriptural basis for both sides because I think we need to understand are they active? Like when people ask questions and say, are the spiritual gifts still active? I don't think they're really talking about the gift of teaching because everybody's like, that, that's not what I'm really worried about. What I want to know is I want to know about healing. I want to know about tongues. I want to know about those gifts. How do they work and are they still active? And so it might surprise some of you that a whole segment of the church believes, nope, not active. Why do they believe they're not active? Here's the verse out of the NASB. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 10. Someone who believes that the miraculous gifts have ceased will cite this verse and say, listen to what Paul is saying. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Based on this verse, they say, it's clear that the gifts can cease at some point. I think we could all probably agree with that. Isn't that kind of a fair interpretation of the verse? The question is, when? When would they cease? So if you look at this verse, when does it say those kind of gifts would cease? The gifts appear to cease. It says, when the perfect comes. It says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Hmm. So the debate really seems to be over what does it mean to say when the perfect comes. All right. So that's the period. Someone who believes that the miraculous gifts have ceased believes that when the perfect comes, 
refers to when scripture was completed. Yeah. Okay, I guess another interpretation I've heard is that when the perfect comes is when Jesus comes back. Yeah. yeah you know, because the rest of that verse, you know, following it says, you know, now we see as a poor reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Right. So therefore, when, we, when Jesus comes back, we don't need the spiritual gifts anymore because we'll see him face to face. So do you find that this kind of twists it a little bit? Is that what you're like? It, you're, seems, it seems to me it kind of twists a little bit. I think that's probably a fair comment. Anyone else want to comment on this? I mean, that's exactly where we're going to go when the charismatic side uses the same exact verse. They're going to make that link that you just made, which is it just seems, first of all, at least from a charismatic view, that there's no indication that when the perfect comes would relate to the assembly of Scripture. Okay? Now, there's a theory of why they believe that, and I'll explain that in a second, but it's hard to get that right out of the verse. It's not talking about Scripture. Like Ryan says, this whole 1 Corinthians 13 is in the context of a love. It's kind of talking about the primacy of love. And then it says, even if you have spiritual gifts, but you don't have love, you're not really doing good. So maybe it's talking about love. Maybe it's talking about the spiritual gifts and how long they're going to last. It's trying to say that love will last forever. The gifts might cease someday. But, but focusing on when do the gifts cease, it seems like Scripture would be kind of a strange thing to get out of it. Yeah. See, the Scripture doesn't, the primary emphasis is not on the gifts. It's conveying what love is. So in other words, if John has tongues or Anthony has prophecy and Ryan has, you know, has different, different things going on, what it's saying is those things may cease if you don't have those individuals in your midst. But love is a, is a call for all of us to have charity towards one another. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing about it is really contextually, you're right. This is really a passage saying love doesn't fail. Things may cease. So people go, stop right there. They said the spiritual gifts might cease. So the cessationists would be like, see? I think a charismatic would say, okay, fine. It's a fair interpretation. It wasn't the point that Paul was making. But he did say they would cease. So we both agree that they would cease. The question is, when? Yeah, Chris. Oh, what's interesting is if, when the Bible was written, it wasn't in verses and chapters. Right. And if you continue to read the letter, it says, so look for people with tongues and people who prophesy. So to say that this person has done away, he actually says, go find these people. Right. <laughs> so, and it's very All right. So I think you guys are probably already sliding to one side of the debate pretty fast on this one. Okay. Here's another one that is cited. I, this one's even less compelling. So this one's from Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 11, and 13, 11 to 13 says this. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So you can see again, there's a reason for the gifts. It's for the equipping of the saints and for the work of service. It's to be in the Lord's service. That's the reason we have these gifts. To the building up of the body of Christ, to actually work within the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Again, he's explaining how long will we have these gifts. And it says here, until up to the building of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith. So when did we all attain the unity of faith? When did that happen? Have we attained the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God? Well, that's the debate. Because here's what happens. Again, cessationist view. 
The gifts will cease when we attain to the unity of faith. Cessations believe that this refers to the time when the Bible was completed. I, just objectively, as I look at this, I'm thinking, I'm not sure I understand where that comes from. I mean, there must be a lot of scholarship behind it, all right? But just looking at it on its face to try to see that that's where Paul is headed to, that really that's when we get the unity of faith. I can, you know, that really means interpreting the word unity of faith to say when we all agree about what our faith is. At that point, there will be no longer a need for the spiritual gifts. But look carefully as to why. Why do cessations take that view? There's two main reasons. One is they believe that spiritual gifts were given to the apostles to prove their authority. Just like when Jesus was questioned, on what authority do you forgive this person's sin? He would say, all right, what's easier, that he get up and walk or that I forgive his sins? His authority was challenged and he would do that kind of miracle to show that he had authority over the person or over the sins you choose. Cessations believe the same thing, that that kind of miraculous power was given to the apostles to establish their authority to teach. But once the scriptures were put together, there was no longer a need for them to establish that authority because now we have the word of God. So that's step one. The second reason they believe that cessation is necessary is because if we had these gifts today, if God spoke through prophets today, if he did these miraculous things, especially the speaking gifts, that would mean that God was speaking on an equal par with the Bible. And we would have confusion, for lack of a better word. Because now God is speaking to the prophets, the modern day prophets, and we got the word of God, and people might not believe that all we need is just the word. People might start to listen to what these prophets are saying. And what if they conflicted? What if they're different? What if they were confusing? So it's better to rely on the word alone and just say, look, we needed the gifts for a short time in the Bible times back during when they were first trying to assemble what it was. But now that we have the Bible, we don't need the gifts anymore. We can just, everything God needed to tell us is in the Bible. Does that resonate good with you? Is that okay? Yeah. That sounds stupid. <laughs> that sounds stupid. God in the box and say that when It sounds like uptight scholarship to me, like somebody's really worried that things might get messy. Yeah, paranoia. yeah like what if somebody... Now, it's true that I've heard people who've received a prophetic word from the Lord, like at least that's what they've said, and I've listened to some of the things they're saying, and I'm like, what? That's, I'm not sure what that means. I'm not even sure that's right. And that's one of the reasons that some of the, the, one of the gifts is discernment, to actually be able to discern the spirits and figure out what comes from the Lord and what doesn't. And I also think that probably we could get away with having the Bible and figuring out, you know, using that as a basis and then seeing what else could come on top of it. But, John, we've also seen teaching like that, too, where you go, what in the world? That is the, right? Yeah. Right, I, I totally agree with that. That's what I was going to say, like, Whatever a prophet says, you know, if it's not according with scripture, then are they a false prophet anyway? You know, are they speaking of God in a way that's, you know, outside of what the Bible would direct us to say? Obviously, the Bible doesn't speak on some issues, but if a Bible seems to speak on an issue and, and a, a modern-day prophet it seems to be given a new revelation that's somehow different, I think we, we use the Word of God first and foremost to 
you know, look at that prophecy. When you look at the Mormon church, you know, they have their prophet who receives new revelations from, from God, supposedly, that are, you know, obviously outside of what the Bible says. Yeah, I think that's what some of the people that are in the camp that feel that the gifts have ceased are worried about. They worry that it might turn into a situation like that where we have these modern-day prophets conflicting with the Word of God. But I agree with Cody that it kind of puts God in a box. Like, all he could do was write the scriptures that we have and then not speak to his people again. Like, that really would be almost what you'd have to believe. That he might still speak to his people. Um, you know, like, we're always talking about sensing the Holy Spirit guiding us. Well, if he, almost like you go, well, you can guide us, but you can't really talk. You know, you can't really tell us new stuff. You just have to make sure it's just what's in the Bible. And I think that makes a lot of us feel a little bit uncomfortable a little bit. So it does seem like somebody's very uptight and they're fearing some sort of mass hysteria that would lead to all this conflict with the Bible. Yeah? The fact that they use the key phrase, you know, attain the unity of faith, does that mean we're all unified just because we read the same book? I don't know. And that, by the way, that also assumes that we're only talking about the body of Christ. Yeah. Like, when it says, until we, we all attain to the unity of faith, if there's a question in that. Is it we all, the body of Christ, attain a unity of faith, or we all as people, like the every knee shall bow concept? Like, that's again, like, you know. It's sort of statement that this is how it is. Yeah, and the funny thing is, I don't, again, I don't think the verse was intended, when you read the whole part, is not intended to be describing the ceasing of gifts or gifts in general. I think what he's talking about is building up the body of Christ. Yeah, but to take the one verse that they choose to take. Right. Yeah, look, I mean, in fairness, they're searching for clues. Let's say, let's put it this way. I don't think it would surprise us if we had Paul in the room right now and said, when you were writing 1 Corinthians, when you were writing Ephesians, were you talking about the gifts ceasing? He'd be like, no, what I was trying to do in one area was talk about love. In this area, I was talking about how the body of Christ has different gifts. And, you know, that was the point. But sure, I was mentioning something in passing, almost like an example, you know. So in fairness, that's probably what happened. But I think it's also fair for people who pour over Paul's writings to search and say, yeah, but if we need the answer to a question and he mentions it twice and it's the only two times we know about it, it's fair to at least inquire what did he mean when he said it. So I think it's fair to discuss it, but I want you to understand why they believe it's sin. So you got those two verses about the only two instances we have. On one of them, they believe that it means that you know, when the perfect comes is the perfect Bible. And... When the unity of faith comes, again, that's when Scripture is unified and we have it because they believe once you have Scripture unified into one canon, there's no need for any other interpretation. All right, what about the charismatics? Not surprisingly, they're looking at the same exact verses because there's really only two places to really deal with this issue. By the way, if you left it up to charismatics, they'd be like, we just believe they're around. So they're not looking for verses that say they're active all the time. They believe that's what the Bible says. They're just trying to rebut the claim that they've ceased. All right, so we look at the same exact verse again. What do they believe? They believe that when the perfect comes, it refers to the second coming of Christ, just like what Paul was mentioning earlier. Why? Why the second coming of Christ? I think that's probably a good interpretation, by the way. It's the interpretation we adopted three weeks ago when we were doing the Examine Your Vision series, that when the perfect comes refers to Christ because the context refers to Christ. If you look at it, this is verses 8 to 12, and as was pointed out, when you get to verse 12, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, but then I shall be fully known. I shall know fully, just as I have been fully known. What about the scripture canonized and put into one uniform body would make you fully known? What about it would make you see somebody face to face? I mean, he's talking about when that day comes. What day is it? When the perfect comes. When is it? It's when I'll be face to face. When I know in part, but then I will fully know and I'll be fully known. It sounds, I mean, just without us going in any deeper, it just sounds like what Paul is making as a case, like when Christ returns is what I'm talking about. This shouldn't be surprising to anybody. Paul believed Christ's return was imminent. Okay? He was telling people it's coming. All right? So there'd be no reason, I think, just as an outside observer looking at this debate with all these biblical scholars who are way smarter than me debating this, but as an outside observer, if Paul thinks the return of Christ is imminent, why would he say the gifts would cease for some period of time once Scripture is unified? Paul didn't, I don't think Paul ever believed Scripture would be unified or that the body would, I mean, he, he believed that Christ was coming back in his lifetime. There isn't enough time for thousands of years to go by or even a couple hundred years by the time we collect the whole canon. That's not his thinking. I haven't seen anybody make that point, by the way, in the debate. It seems like it's an obvious one that if you look at Paul's writings, it's inconsistent with, at least his bias in the way he wrote was inconsistent with a cessationist view. You know? And again, if we had him here and we could interview him, go, did you think that this gifts would cease when scripture was collected? He's like, I didn't even think it was going to be collected. I thought Jesus was coming back in a few years. All right, so that's the rebuttal point. Let's take a look at the rebuttal point for Ephesians. I did something a little bit unfair, and I admit it. I'll admit it now. Do you see where it says, same verse again, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Do you see the ellipse where I cut some words out? All right. I cut them out because I wanted, I wanted to just hold that back from the argument for just a second. Cessationists say he gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets for the equipping of the saints until we attain the unity of the faith. We already looked at the verse. Here's the full verse. He gave some to be apostles, some as prophets. And the part that I withheld from you is, and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers. If you're going to claim that all those things like apostles and prophets cease when we attain the unity of faith, and if you're going to believe that the unity of faith is a collection of scripture, then by the whatever property of scripture interpretation that I believe you should follow, you got to take everything that's in the verse. You can't cut some of the words out like I did. So the words that would seem to be cut out from that interpretation would be evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And I think you could ask anybody who believes in a cessationist view, do you believe that the gifts of evangelism, pastoring, and teaching still exist in the world today? All of those guys are teachers and pastors. Of course they do. But if you're going to believe that apostleship and prophet, prophecy and being a prophet are done because of this verse, then you have to throw those out too. So that's another outside observer just looking at it thinking, you can't slice and dice the verse. You can't say that those ones are active and those other ones aren't. Because if this is the basis of claiming it ceased, then they've all ceased. And I don't think they would take that position. If they did, that would be strange, because we'd be saying that really what we have as pastors and teachers and evangelists today are just highly trained people, but not spiritually gifted people. 
I don't think that's true. I mean, it might happen. I'm sure it happens. But to say that no teacher, no pastor, no evangelist has a spiritual gift, that I just that's extreme. All right. One more thing on the charismatic side just to look at it. And this is kind of strange because if you'd asked me, like, just objectively go, what would you side with? Like a charismatic view? I'd be like, charismatic view? Like, that would be, that, wouldn't, that isn't something that I would think that I would belong into. But as I look at this, it makes a lot of sense. You saw this. We just talked about it a few minutes ago. That people who believe that those gifts cease believe that the purpose for those gifts was to establish apostolic authority. Charismatics, though, say there are other reasons why the gifts are active, and there are other people that use the gifts in the New Testament who were not apostles. So if you're saying that the purpose of the gifts died when the apostles died because the only purpose was to establish their authority, in the New Testament, we have these people that I've listed, Simon, Philip, Ananias, evidence that the whole Galatian church was witnessing and using Miraculous gifts, those people were not apostles by the definition that is adopted by a cessationist. So the claim that only apostles use those gifts to establish their authority doesn't really hold water because there are non-apostles recorded as having used the same gifts. Okay. So if I were to take a vote right now on which view you would adopt, how many people would like think that maybe, how many people are on the cessationist side, anyone? Any merit to their side? No merit? Like, does anybody, if you had to make an argument? <laughs> huh? I mean, I think you can make an argument based on abuses that you see in the charismatic church. Well, at least you, you might think of them as abuses, and so you obviously go polar opposite. Well, they can't exist at all because it's too dangerous to even go, go there. What are some of the abuses you think might exist in the charismatic church? Like, um, Well, I think... When scripture talks about tongues, there always has to be an interpretation of tongues. And I myself have personally been in charismatic settings where people have all been speaking tongues, and I there was no interpretation. I did, had no idea what was going on. And you know, I personally haven't had that gift, so I didn't I didn't understand. And so I, I, it brought confusion to me. And, and anyone else, especially people who were non-Christians that came to that setting, would not understand it whatsoever, and they would probably be not want to ever come back. Good. That's a fair comment. What else? Yeah. Well, and with that, we don't see them as prevalent in our American church, which also makes it hard. Like, I've never seen them, but I've heard about it happening in other countries right. or in other parts of America that I've never been in. So for me personally, I can make a stance of, oh, I don't see it, but I have heard about it, but can I believe what I've heard? Yeah, so we're a little skeptical, maybe. One of the charismatic writers that I'm reading fairly criticized the charismatic movement himself. And he said some of the things that make people nervous about charismatic worship is it seems like we're overly expressing feeling and not grounding it in maybe either the scripture or just in some sort of sense, okay? That we're not only overly emotional, but sometimes we're chasing after the next high. That we're moving from place to place, wherever there may be a quote-unquote movement of the spirit, we're chasing that to be part of it. And thirdly, he said, it makes some people uncomfortable some of the, again, use the word like movements and manifestations, like the holy laughter where people are like, you know, giggling and laughing. I'm not even sure, you know, how it works or the, or the barking and all that kind of stuff. And one of the reasons he was criticizing that was saying, that's a small minority of charismatics, but that's the stuff that gets the press headlines in the church. Like most 
people are not doing that, are not like that, are just as interested in, in doctrine and scripture and scholarship and are not all about feelings and everything. They just have that fullness, like you use the word fullness, to add that into and integrate into a real biblical understanding of the power that God gives us. He said, but it's those people that get the headlines. And that makes the rest of the church very, very nervous. And I think it's made the church so nervous that there's actually a group of people, which are the cessationists, that are looking for doctrinal grounds to just say it's not there anymore because maybe it makes them so nervous or they would just rather not deal with it because that's going to make things untidy. Yeah. Uh, I think it's dangerous to be like on one end of each extreme, you know, because I feel like that's like not only putting God in the box, but it's also putting ourselves in a box. You know, and I feel like some people are more curated to, to be more expressive about their faith and some people aren't. Some people are more introverted about their faith and more, you know, logical about what they do. Um, you know, you also have to be careful because there's some times where I've, I've heard people say where it's like, oh man, the Lord told me to, to, to do this and I feel the Lord telling me to do this, is doing it. And it's like, man, the Lord didn't say do that, you want to do that. So you're saying that the Lord wants you to do this, you know? And so I feel like sometimes to take it to that extreme, it's very dangerous because it's like, wait a minute, you know, let's go back to the scriptures. Okay. So, so far it seems like everybody's kind of on one side. I've given them a little maybe balance the other side that I think that even charismatics themselves are cautious that there's some people that are probably, I'm not, I'm not going to use the word give them a bad name, but there are people out there that are doing certain things that have caused nervousness on the other side. Okay, fair enough. I wanted to ask that question about where you are because I wanted to then come to this. So far in my understanding and looking at this debate between the two sides, there is one though that kind of stands out a little to me. And that is, it seems like the miraculous gifts disappeared for a while. And I use the word seems like in italics. Put that in italics for a moment. You see, cessationists correctly point out that it seems like the miraculous gifts kind of faded away for a while. After the end of the first century, it seems like their use is much less. They actually use that to point out that Throughout church history after the first century, we don't have a lot of teaching. We don't have a lot of evidence of these gifts continuing in the church. And at first I thought, well, I don't know. Is that really true or not? But what surprised me was that fair-minded charismatics agree. And they say, yes, there certainly was a big drop-off after the first century. And that isn't all. That's like the one bookend on this side. And most charismatics say that at the beginning of the 20th century, they seem to come back. That was something that I'll just tell you as an objective outside observer, I was kind of like, that's an interesting fact. That colors my thinking just a little bit. Because I'm very suspicious and skeptical a lot of times of how we who are alive today always seem to think we're the special ones. Like, Jesus is coming in our time. We're the ones that have the outpouring of the Spirit suddenly. Revival's coming now. And if you look at church history, revival happened many times. You know, So it's just something that made me go, hmm, tell me more about that. So charismatics admit that there is certainly a decrease in the use of gifts, but... They correctly point out as well that in church history, there is some record of continued use, that these miraculous gifts did not disappear entirely. And I'm not talking about like 20 years ago. I'm talking about looking at the third century, the fifth century. Were these gifts still there? 
Were some of our early church fathers writing about the gift of tongues? Writing about the healing? And I'm not just talking about like praying to God for healing, but people who have the power to heal. Where the Holy Spirit indwells them to heal. Okay, indwells them to prophesy. Not just somebody receiving a vision or a prophecy from the Lord. Because I think even cessations believe that that still could happen. But to have somebody with that gift on a continuous basis, they say no. Charismatics say no, there's some evidence of it. But certainly it came back in a mighty way at the beginning of the 20th century. That gives me a little bit of pause. I don't know what to do with it. I'm just going to kind of like put a place marker next to that and think that's still, I'd like a better explanation than just, well, I, you know, I'd actually like an explanation of why now, okay? Some people will say because God is preparing us for the end times. They're coming back. This better explanation than I've heard, that's a good explanation. I, I'd almost buy that. I'd go, okay. Another thing that charismatics point out is this wouldn't be the first time that God was silent, we know that just between the two testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, God was silent for like 400 years where he didn't speak to his people. Maybe there was a little college group meeting somewhere during that period of time and somebody was like, did God's prophecy cease? And there would be people who were like, absolutely, he hasn't spoken to us in 385 years, he's not doing it again. Right? And there was another group of people who's like, no, it's just a matter of time. In this case, it would be about 1,800 years. Not of silence, but 1,800 years where somehow it wasn't like it was during the first century. Then suddenly it was back in a mighty way. Fair-minded charismatics will admit that's a little strange, but it wouldn't be the first time is there a response. Yes. Yeah, that there's really a, a, like a, a holdback of it, and it really has decreased in frequency. The other thing they point out, by the way, is it wouldn't be the first time that we had lost certain spiritual truths and rediscovered them. Here's specifically an example they'll point out. The Reformation brought back in a mighty way the idea that we were saved by grace. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Catholic Church was slowly developing a doctrine that described what types of works you had to do to get salvation. And, and had lost, almost, for a better word, lost the doctrine of justification by faith, by grace. Okay? The Reformation brought it back in a mighty way, so a, a doctrine that is in the Bible, but had almost been buried, forgotten, and lost. All right. I just put those up there because that's the belief that somehow, as we live in the 20th and 21st century, we're going to get to see some cool stuff because they're back in a mighty way. They actually have broken it down into the first wave of... of, of unleashing of the gifts, the second wave, we're now in the third wave. We can go into all that. <laughs> Those are the places where I was, I'm reading, I'm like, hmm, you guys had me really good, <laughs> you know? And this part, just, just something that I think needs some explanation, okay? So what do we do with this knowledge? Why did I set it up this way? Before we start talking about the gifts and, and what they are, the reason I thought it was at least fair to present this debate is because I want you guys to know that there is a difference of viewpoint. All right. I think we've probably been a little bit fair to both sides in looking at what they believe. I still think that if you guys really wanted to know, like, what's the truth in my heart? What would I really want to know? It'd be like, can someone heal today or not? Just give me the answer. Can someone do those gifts today or not? And I tell you, like, well, that's why we invite the Holy Spirit here, because he's the only one with the absolute right answer. I don't know that I can or any of these people debating it can give you. I don't want to be arrogant enough to ever say, 
well, I've concluded that these people are right or wrong. It seems like the charismatics in this sense have the better argument. But it's not completely in the clear, in my opinion, at such a point where you think like, God, you'd be an idiot not to believe this. It seems like they have a little bit of explaining to do on why suddenly the gifts are, are these particular gifts. The good news is if you're not one of those people with those gifts that are kind of in question, then we'll be talking about what your gifts are and telling all sorts of great things about them. All right. Tonight was more of the just get this out of the way so we get that debate out of the way. We're going to do the spiritual gifts inventory, and then when we're done with that, um, we're going to critique the inventory a little bit and see if you guys really believe that this stuff comes out with something that's accurate for you, and then start to talk about the different gifts and what they are. Where we're going with the series, once we kind of figure out what your gift is and what the gifts are, that's kind of half the work. The real work that I want to do is figuring out how to cultivate those gifts. How do you grow those gifts? How can we realign people with what gifts they have? And to answer some of those tougher questions about what happens, can you lose the gift? Can it change? See if we can find answers. See if people have actually given us answers to some of those things that really are on your minds. Okay? All right, let's pray and close up tonight. Lord, it seems strange that we would even question your working in this world. I know that if each person in here looks deeply into their own lives for just a moment, we would see so much of an evidence of how your hand has moved us and the places where you have been active in our life. It just doesn't seem right, Lord, to even question that kind of power in our lives. So, Lord, tonight, would you just honor our study of this question? Only you know the true answers, Lord. Only you know the gifts that you've given. And I pray, Lord, that you would just reveal a little bit of the secret things that belong to you. Give them just to us to understand and to serve you better with the tools that you've given us. Holy Spirit, we yearn to know more. And I know that some of us are just going to be frustrated by the fact that our minds are limited and we're not going to know everything in this life or maybe even in the next. But Lord, be our instructor. May you give us a supernatural glimpse into your glory and the way that you choose and love to work through your creation. We pray these things in your name, amen.